Tonight we finish a four-part series on a wonderful epistle, the epistle of 2 Peter, and we've called this series Stirred. In his first letter, Peter warned about persecution that would come from outside of the church. But in this second letter, he warns the people, the believers, about false teaching that would rise up from inside the church. Peter warned them that this time around, spiritual opposition would actually come from those who say they are believers. They still profess to know Jesus, but they've departed from the doctrine and from the godly lifestyle taught by the apostles. And now, those same people are trying to influence others in the church to follow them in their backsliding. They question They even attack the teaching of the elders. And it is a treacherous time in the middle of the first century. Peter wants to stir up that church to remember what they've been taught. Peter tells them, in order to prepare the church for the future, we must remember the past. I am neither ashamed nor embarrassed, nor intimidated by the heritage that we have been passed. I am so thankful to be an apostolic Pentecostal believer. Our elders were good and godly men and women who literally prayed us into existence. And if you think we're going to apologize that they were different or they lived different or they talked different or they walked different, we're not apologizing for that. God help us to live the same kind of lives that our elders lived. But Peter lived and preached at the beginning of the church age. We, brothers and sisters, live and preach at the end of the church age, just before the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. If it was important for saints to stay stirred up in the first century, it is exponentially more important for the saints of God to stay stirred up in the 21st century. And we've walked through this little epistle. It's not very long. In the first half of chapter 1, Peter tells these believers, he says, make every effort. Give all diligence to add to your faith. Don't just coast. Don't just say, I I just believed and that's all I need. No, he said, you add to your faith. Add virtue, knowledge, temperance, patience. Add godliness, brotherly kindness, charity. And he says, If you'll do these things, if you won't just sit there, if you won't just coast, if you'll actively add to your faith, you shall never fall. The greatest protection against backsliding is to dig your hands and your feet, your heart and your soul deep into the word of God, deep into a move of God, and just stay there. And that's Peter's secret to living a victorious Christian life. Continually add to your faith. Grow in God. In the second half of chapter 1, Peter turns his attention to the Word of God. And that is what our faith is built upon. Not men and women, personalities, denominations. Our faith is not built on personality cults. Our faith is built on the Word of God. And he emphasizes the importance of knowing the Scriptures. That is our defense against false doctrine. You see, false teachers can easily seduce people who don't know their Bible. 
There are tens of thousands of people all around our province that want a spiritual experience. But a spiritual experience without the word of God at its root is a dangerous spiritual experience. Deception can come like a virus in the middle of that kind of experience. God's word is the only foundation for the Christian life. Not what you feel, not what you think, not your opinion or anybody else's, but what the word of God says, that is your foundation for your Christian life. Last week we talked about chapter 2, and in chapter 2, Peter warned that church. He said, you beware of counterfeit apostles. You beware of carnal prophets, false teachers, fake saints. Beware of them. Their version of Christianity is easy, comfortable, lenient, casual, accommodating, popular. Their message gives people a good feeling, but the problem is it's totally false. These false teachers, please hear pastor, they use our vocabulary, but they don't use our dictionary. They say salvation, but it doesn't mean the same thing as what the Bible teaches. They say Holy Spirit, but it doesn't mean the same thing as what the Bible talks about. They, they talk about repentance, but it's a far cry from the life-changing experience of the Word of God. They talk about baptism, but it can be done a dozen different ways. But they use our vocabulary, but you've got to use this dictionary, the Word of God, to define what the Word of God is talking about. Immature believers hear those kind of preachers and teachers. And they think because they use similar words that they're Pentecostal in doctrine, but sadly, they're far from it. And they love to flaunt their new lifestyle, their new liberty. And they don't even see that it's the same old bondage that they were once delivered from, and they've fallen back into it. It's a tragedy. It's a travesty, but it's a sign of the last days. And now in chapter 3, Peter will turn his attention to the reason all of this is so critically important. The reason we must protect truth and reject error. The reason the church must remain stirred. The reason. Do you know why? Because Jesus is coming soon. That's why. And Peter says, this second epistle, brethren, beloved, I'm writing it to you, in both which I stir up, somebody shout, stir up, your pure minds by way of remembrance. Why? That you may be mindful of the words which were spoken before by the holy prophets and of the commandment of us, the apostles of the Lord and Savior. How? Can you avoid the lethargy and the apathy of the end times? How can you overcome the carnal appetites of our culture and the cunning attacks of the devil? How can you stay stirred in your spirit? Here's how. You have to live your life every single day being mindful of the word of God. It is very easy, folks, to become accustomed to being a church member, to be accustomed, become accustomed to coming to church services, to become accustomed 
system to a little bit of worship and a little bit of praise and a little bit of prayer and a little bit of word, but we need more than that. Eutychus fell asleep and fell out a window listening to the great apostle Paul preaching. But I got one worse than that. Spiritually speaking, an entire generation right now is basically asleep and complacent. But in the middle of a sleepy, complacent, last day's generation that is far from God and messed up so badly, there is a church whose desire is to stay stirred up in the Holy Ghost every single day and to stay mindful of the word. Paul said this, he said, knowing the time that now it is high time to awake out of sleep for now is our salvation nearer than when we believed. If I could, I'd love to come down there and just get a hold of some of you and just shake you a little bit. But you have to do that yourself spiritually. You have to every once in a while say, wake up, wake up. It's too close to the end for you to doze off spiritually. Jesus is coming too soon for you to just kind of fall asleep at the wheel of your life every once in a while. You've got to grab yourself by your lapels and say, wake up. It's time to be serious about living for God Peter said this not everybody is interested in staying stirred you know he said knowing this first that there shall come in the last days scoffers they will walk after their own lust and here's what the scoffers will say in the last days where is the promise of his coming For since the fathers, the elders, fell asleep, since the elders died, all things continue as they were from the beginning of the creation. The elders preached about the coming of the Lord. The elders preached about the rapture. The elders preached about the end times and the last days. But we buried the elders, and since they fell asleep, it's all just the same. So why should we be concerned? Why should we have any kind of uh, special anxiety about the times in which we live. One of the major themes that runs through the word of God is this phrase, the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord is that time at the end of time when our God will right wrongs, judge sin, reward righteousness, and set up his eternal kingdom. It's not just the Old Testament prophets who talked about the day of the Lord. The New Testament apostles did too, including Peter. In fact, one out of every 30 verses in the New Testament mentions the subject of the end of time or of the coming of Jesus back to this earth. It has never been more important, more critical, more crucial, more central to be ready for Jesus' return. There are many signs given in the Bible to let us know we are living in the last days. In Matthew chapter 24, Jesus pinpointed a generation that wouldn't be any different than any other generation except for this. They would live in a time when they witnessed a rapid series of astounding events that would culminate in his second coming. Jesus warned us of false prophets and religious leaders who would deceive masses of people while calling themselves Christians. Jesus warned of wars 
and threats of war. Jesus warned about ethnos shall rise against ethnos, nation against nation, or we would say ethnicity against ethnicity. Jesus warned about increasing rates of famine and disease and earthquakes in many, many places. He said, Jesus said, believers, you, you will be hated, persecuted, and some will even be killed for their faith. Jesus said, offense and betrayal will cause many people to lose their faith. And because there would be such open iniquity, Jesus even said that the love of many will wax cold. It'll be like a candle with a hot flame. But when it gets blown out, the wax just begins to cool and harden. Not only does the word of God predict his coming, but the word of God also predicts the appearance of scoffers who will deny that word. Their very presence in our generation, every late night comedian who mocks the Bible and Christianity and men and women of God, they are a sign of the end times. Their presence, the scoffers in our generation, that's just one more sign that Jesus is coming soon. A scoffer is someone who treats lightly what should be taken seriously. They scoff at the Bible. They scoff at heaven or hell. They scoff at the very existence of God. And they scoff most of all at the idea of his coming back, judgment, the rapture. And why do they scoff? The Bible tells us in Peter's words, because they want to continue walking after their own lusts. They scoff because they want to continue living in sin. And what is their argument against the coming of the Lord? Here's their argument. Well, it hasn't happened yet, so it can't be real. Where is the promise of his coming anyway? What about all those passionate sermons preached years ago about the rapture? Every one of those preachers is dead and gone, and Jesus still hasn't returned. So they must have been wrong. Life just goes on as usual. The world didn't end. Nothing has changed. All things continue as they were. But if he could, that day of Pentecost preacher named Peter would rise up, speak up from his grave, and he would make his case. And here's what he would say. For this they are willingly ignorant of. They're not innocently ignorant they're willingly ignorant that by the word of God, the heavens were of old and the earth standing out of the water and in the water, whereby the world that then was being overflowed with water perished. That's the flood in Noah's day. But the heavens and the earth, which are now by the same word are kept in store, reserved unto fire against the day of judgment and perdition of godly men. Well, thank you, Pastor. That's a King James tongue twister. Well, let me help you with that. Peter declares these scoffers are willingly ignorant. They don't understand because they don't want to understand. 
They want to ignore anything and everything that convicts them. And their argument is that the world has always been this way. Human history is stable. It's carried on for millennia. So it's nothing to be alarmed about all these signs of the times. It's nothing to be alarmed about a global pandemic that shuts down borders and air travel and the hotel industry and keeps people in and kills over a million people. Oh, that's nothing to be concerned about. It's just ordinary human history unfolding. And Peter counters their faulty thinking. And he just does it by saying one thing. He reminds them of what God did in the past. God created this world by his word. And you read the Genesis account. He brought the ground that you walk on, the ground that your house sits on. He brought that ground. He brought the earth out of the water. That's what Peter said. And Peter said, yep, and after God did that, human life remained stable for many years. But when wickedness engulfed the world in the time of Noah, that same God, by that same word, allowed water to overflow the earth once again and judge humanity. Just because a flood had never happened, just because it had never rained on the earth before, that didn't mean God would not intervene in judgment. He did it in the day of Noah when the world was overflowed with water and perished. Now, our world today, you can listen to all the talking heads if you want to. Our world today is not being held together by human power or human ingenuity or human brilliance. Our word is being held, world is being held together today by that very same word of God that spoke this world into existence. And the God who spoke this world into existence and the God who is holding everything together, he reserves the right to judge the world once again. He promised in Genesis 9-11 he would never again send the flood that would cover the whole earth. But he declared that the next judgment on the whole earth will be by fire. That's never happened before. I say to you what Peter said to them. Just because it has never happened before does not mean that God will not intervene in judgment. He did it in the past and he says he will do it again the day of the Lord is inevitable. The day of the Lord is coming at this planet like a freight train roaring in their ears, but they can't even see it because they don't want to see it. But beloved, don't be ignorant of one thing. That one day is with the Lord as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. Our God, the Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some men would accuse him of being slack. But he is long-suffering toward us. He is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. See, what Peter just did there is he anticipated their next objection. Their first objection was, well, everything kind of continues on like it was. So he, he tackles that. And then he anticipates their next objection. Well, if God reserves the right to judge the world, then why the delay? Why is it taking God so long? And once again, he exposes their ignorance. 
Not only are they ignorant of what God has done in the past in his judgments, they are also ignorant of something much more important. They are ignorant of what God is like. They don't know him. When it looks like God is delaying his judgment on this world, you remember two things. When it looks like what the elders preached to us didn't come true, you remember two things. Number one, God is eternal. And number two, God is merciful. Hmm. Hmm. Some of us have felt his mercy. Some of us desperately needed his mercy. Some of us are here tonight because of his mercy. So the next time somebody accuses your God of being so powerless that he can't judge the world, it's just fiction. You remember two things. God's eternal. He's not working on your timetable. And God is merciful. You see, man, men and women, we're immortal. We have a beginning, but we don't have an ending. You are an eternal soul. You are not a human being having a spiritual experience. You are a spiritual being that's going to live forever somewhere. And right now, for 60 or 70 or 80 or 90 years, you're having a physical experience. But you are going to live forever somewhere. Man, woman, human beings have an, a beginning but not an ending. But we dwell in time. But someday, when God wraps up time, we are going to exist forever in either heaven or hell. But our God, he is not limited by time like you are. He has neither beginning nor ending. He dwells in eternity. No, eternity is not just endless, boring time. Eternity is existence apart from time. It is existence that is totally different from time. And as a result of him living in eternity, God has a completely different perspective than you and I do. With him... One day is as a thousand years. So our God is never in a hurry, but he's never late either. <laughs> Some of you that have answered prayers, you know that. You said he's not in a hurry. You prayed and prayed and prayed and prayed, but he wasn't late. God, this God, our God, he waited for one Pharaoh to die and another Pharaoh to succeed him just so he could put Israel into slavery and then pay them back wages for 430 years on the night they spoiled the Egyptians when they were delivered from slavery. He did that. He waited. This God, our God, he promised them a land flowing with milk and honey. But then he held up Israel's journey for 40 years in the wilderness. You know why? Just so he could work out a few character flaws in the people. You wonder why it's taken so long? You may be telling on yourself. This God, our God, he rejected King Saul and he anointed young David to be king. But then he just stood back and watched for the next dozen to 15 years as Saul clung to his throne and hunted David like a fugitive and nearly killed him. You know why God did that? Oh, just so he could build a man after God's own heart. That's why he let him walk through that. I get emails and phone calls and text messages and, oh my goodness, I wish there were a few less ways to get a hold of a pastor in the year of our Lord, 2020. And you try to keep up with it all. Sometimes all the windows pop open at once. 
there used to be a program, I can't remember what it was called, it, it, on, a, on the computer. Some of you probably still have it. Uh, ding, you've got mail. It doesn't sound like that anymore. Is that AOL? It doesn't sound like that anymore. It sounds like, ding, 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 ding. You've got mails. You get so many, so many mails, so many emails, so many texts, so many letters. And sometimes buried under those letters, those emails, those texts, is the question, why, pastor? Why? I don't understand. I'm a good person. I have faith in God. Prayed over my kids. Tried to serve God. Tried to be a giver. And buried under, if you could dig far enough, buried under that is why. Now I got to tell you, I don't have any good answers. I don't know why. I try to give them all the right things and say pastor, what pastors are supposed to say. But I don't know why. But when I read what Peter writes here, that we serve a God with whom one day is as a thousand years. It gives me just a little glimpse into something. That you don't know what God's up to because he's not operating on your timetable. I want to spring you out of that sickness tonight. I want your kids to come back to God this weekend. I want them to pray through right now. I want it all to be over yesterday, but I don't control that. But with our God, one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. Here's what I can tell you. This is all I can tell you. It's not even a good answer, but our God knows. He understands. He is with you. You don't have to be afraid. And when he has tried me, I shall come forth as gold. That's all I got. But that's enough when you trust this God that we serve. Oh, I need somebody to lift up your hands and just thank God for a moment. We serve a God who is in control. We serve a God who loves us. We serve a God who is with us. Ah. Oh. I wish some intercessors would just take about 30 seconds and just lift up that cry in prayer. Just lift up that push in the supernatural. Jesus is here on a Bible study night. Jesus is here. He's walking with you. You can't see him. You might not be able to feel him. You might not know what he's doing, but he is with you. Fear not, I am with you. Oh, yes, 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 yes. Ah. The Spirit of the Lord is here. I can feel Him in the atmosphere tonight. Ah. Not only is our God eternal, but he is merciful. If he has delayed his coming, prophetically, I'm not a scholar on that. I don't know if it's possible for him to delay his coming. I'm not sure. I don't think so, but I'm not sure. But if he has delayed his coming, I do know why. It's not because he's unable to wrap everything up. It's not because he's unwilling to bring judgment and right wrongs. If he has delayed his coming. If it is possible for him to delay his coming, it's only for one reason, because he's merciful. 
Because he's long-suffering. And if you think, I don't want my kids to be lost, God doesn't want your kids to be lost. I don't want my grandkids to be away from God when he comes. God doesn't want your grandkids to be away from him when he comes. If he has delayed his coming, it's only for one reason. He is merciful. He's long-suffering. God doesn't want anyone to spend eternity in hell. He wants all sinners to come to repentance. When Peter uses that phrase, come to repentance, it literally means this. He wants all sinners to make room for repentance. He wants stuff to happen in their lives. He's orchestrating things behind the scene so their heart will open up and make room for repentance to get in there. Even the scoffers who right now mock his mercy, God doesn't want them to go to hell either. Uh, This isn't in the notes, but I got to say it. If you secretly kind of grin inside thinking that someday some perverted person, some evil sinister person, somebody that hates God and you and church and righteousness, if somewhere inside of you there's this little smug smirk that someday they're going to get what's coming to them because God's going to throw them in hell. That's not the spirit of Jesus. That is not the spirit of Jesus. He doesn't want anybody to go to hell. I don't care how warped and messed up and perverted they are. He doesn't want them to go to hell. He created them. And if you want them to go to hell, you need to pray because you are in danger of Even people who mock him and mock church and mock righteousness, they lie. They don't love truth. But God is not a man that he should lie. Neither the Son of Man that he should repent. People need to repent. God doesn't need to repent. He hasn't done sin. Hath God said and Shall he not do it? Or hath he spoken? And shall he not make it good? If God said it, he's going to do it. So now having refuted the scoffers' attacks, Peter now reaffirms the certainty of the day of the Lord. When one more time, before we get out of here, the world will be judged. When will it come, Peter? No one knows. Because it will come as a thief in the night. But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in the which the heavens shall pass away with a great noise, and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. The earth also, and the works that are therein, shall be burned up. Jesus used the image of a thief in Matthew 24, and so did the Apostle Paul in 1 Thessalonians 5. And here's what they said. When the world is feeling secure, like they've got it all under control, that everything's just going to keep going on, then God's judgment will fall. The thief doesn't warn his victims that he's coming. We don't know when it will happen, but we know that it will happen. Paul said, For yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so cometh as a thief in the night. For when they shall say peace and safety, 
then sudden destruction cometh upon them. As travail upon a woman with child, and they shall not escape. But you, brethren, not you, you're not in darkness that that day should overtake you as a thief. You have the light of God in you. You have the word of God in you. You've been baptized with the Holy Ghost. You've been baptized in Jesus' name. You repented at an altar. Not you. If anybody should be living with the coming of the Lord in mind, it's you. Not you. It shouldn't be coming as a thief to you. You should be expecting it any day. I look around, we've got these fine Bible college students here tonight, some young people. We've got a, a room full of young people in there. You've got precious children with you tonight. Some of these young people, they're not going to get to have a career. They're not going to get to have children and grandchildren. They're not going to get to have a retirement. Because Jesus is coming. And he's going to interrupt somebody's life one of these days. And they're not going to grow old and gray-headed and we're not going to have their funeral. They're going to go from a pew to the streets of gold. They're going to go from their living room to gates of pearl because Jesus is coming. Uh, I feel the anointing of the Holy Ghost, but my pastor tells me, and I believe him, that every once in a while you feel the anointing, the mantle of some old elders that just rests on you for a little while. And I believe him when he says that. I feel the anointing of some elders that were behind me. They came ahead of me in this area. They preached in this city in 1920 in a tent. And we are only here because they preached to us. They preached to our parents and grandparents that Jesus Jesus is coming and I feel a little bit of their mantle tonight because if he was coming in 1920, he's coming in 2020. I know people don't like it when preachers yell. I'm so sorry to offend you, but I feel the anointing of some elders that didn't even have a PA system. They grew up yelling. They yelled, you need to repent. They yelled, you need to be baptized. They yelled, you get to receive the Holy Ghost. And I feel a little bit of their unction on me tonight because we got to stay stirred because Jesus is coming. Let your voice out like a cry, like, like, like a cry. Just let your voice out and pray, church. Oh, yes, yes, yes. Thank God you're in the church. Thank God you're in Bible study tonight. Thank God you're feeling the Holy Ghost tonight. Thank God you're still able to lift up your hands and pray. Thank God Jesus is moving in your life. Thank God you're on this side of the rapture. You can get anything right in your life right now. You can get anything forgiven right now. You can put your past in the past right now. Thank God we're still here. (laughs) 
Oh, thank you, Jesus. Oh, thank you, Jesus. Oh, thank you, Jesus. Anytime you mention the coming of the Lord or the end times of the last days, somebody goes off on some extreme or some tangent or gets up on some soapbox. The purpose of prophecy is not speculation and fighting and arguing about all the little details of prophecy. The purpose of prophecy is not speculation. The purpose purpose of prophecy is motivation to get us ready for the coming of the Lord. I don't care if you think he's coming right now or seven years from now or three and a half years from now. I don't care. I just want you to be ready at all times because here's what I know. Jesus is coming. We don't need to figure out exactly when he's coming. We just need to be ready for his coming at all times. Peter wants us to be stirred up about it. Nothing. Oh, nothing in this world matters except what you do for God's kingdom. Everything here is temporary and will be destroyed except the human soul which in you is eternal and it's going to exist somewhere forever, either heaven or hell. Nothing else matters except your soul. Cindy and Tammy, a precious old elder in our church, got down in that far stairwell in the lower auditorium when we had prayer down there. And every time we had prayer meeting before church, you'd hear Ab McCoy praying over family and loved ones and He'd say over and over, what about their soul, God? What about their soul, God? What about their... The only thing that you're taking out of here with you is your soul. And you get to direct where it spends eternity. There's nothing more important. Don't forfeit your soul. Mm. I I, I don't want to turn this into a two-hour Bible study, but just, just an hour before church, I got a note from one of our superintendents in America, and and he said, could you tell me something? I'm preaching tonight on godliness with contentment is great gain. And he said, could you tell me just a little bit about Benny and Teresa DeMerchant? He said, I heard this about them. Can you verify that? I said, oh, yeah, I can verify that. Because I stayed, I had the honor and the privilege of staying in their humble little home in Manaus, Brazil. They had nothing. They gave it all to the work of God. His filing cabinets were full of airplane parts and papers for the church. His computer was ancient. <laughs> they had nothing. When Teresa de Merchant came home after his death and moved in with her kids in the U.S., she came home in seven or eight suitcases. And about half of them were her pots and pans that she didn't want to part with. You could have picked them up for 30 bucks at Walmart, but they were hers. She wanted them, so they brought them home. Nothing. They gave everything. And when I stayed in their home in a humble little bedroom, there was a ra- their furniture wouldn't have fetched $200 at a yard sale. On the mirror in the bedroom, on the dresser, was a little piece of paper taped in the corner with the scripture on it, Daniel 12 and 3. They that turn many to righteousness will shine as the stars forever and ever. That was them. They didn't leave anything. But they took their souls and they took thousands of souls to heaven. 
I'm not trying to be melancholy. I'm trying to stir you up in Jesus' name. Because even on a Wednesday night, on the last day of September 2020, I got to remind you, Jesus is coming, and he could come before next month. Yes, October 1st. He could come before October 1st gets here. Peter said, seeing then that all these things, look at your purse, look at your clothes, look at your car, look at your house, all these things shall be dis dissolved. Seeing that all, it's all going to disappear. What manner of persons ought you to be in all holy conversation and godliness, looking for and hasting unto the coming of the day of God, wherein the heavens being on fire shall be dissolved and the elements shall melt with fervent heat? Your lifestyle should be different than the world if you know that Jesus is coming. His coming is our motivation for living a holy lifestyle, Peter said. It's our motivation for living a prayerful lifestyle and an evangelistic lifestyle. We are looking for and hasting unto the coming of the Lord. That literally means we're not only expecting it. See, a lot of people, they have enough church background to kind of think, uh-oh, Jesus is coming. We're not only expecting his coming, we're excited about his coming. Jesus is coming. He's going to right every wrong. Your trials will be over. Your pain will be past. And you're going to get to be with him forever and ever. We're not only expecting his coming, we're excited about his coming. Oh, my goodness. You talk about shouting the victory. You talk about dancing in the spirit. You talk about joy. You talk about worship and praise. One second after Jesus gets back here, there's going to be a party in the air en route to the big party on the streets of gold. Jesus is coming. We're not only expecting it, we're excited about it. I wish you'd clap your hands unto the Lord. Not for me, unto the Lord. And give him a shout of praise. Expectant praise. Jesus is coming. Brother Larry, if you don't get healed down here, you're going to get healed on your way up there. You're not going to need those. You're not going to need that chair. Jesus is coming. Jesus is coming. Our hope is not in this world. Our hope is in heaven. We not only know that he's coming with our head, we love that he's coming with our heart. We can hardly wait. Ah. Mm. Peter said, I got a lot of bad news. We got false prophets and fake Christians and we got false apostles and counterfeit everything. But we, nevertheless... We, according to his promise, we're looking for something different. It's not even down here. We look for new heavens and a new earth wherein dwelleth righteousness. Wherefore, beloved, seeing that you are looking for such things, be diligent that you may be found of him in peace without spot 
and blameless. That refers to your everyday outward life living for God. That's spots without, without spots and blameless. Because we are looking for the coming of the Lord, we are motivated to live diligent lives. Peter's used this term before in this very same letter. Chapter 1, giving all diligence add to your faith. Chapter 1, give diligence to make your calling and election sure. He's already told us you need to be diligent. But nowhere is it more important to be diligent than when you're talking about being ready for the coming of the Lord. Verse 15, an account that the long-suffering of our Lord is salvation. God's only waiting on this because he's trying to get more people saved. Even as our beloved brother Paul also, according to the wisdom given unto him, hath written unto you. So Paul also wrote to some of these people. As also in all his epistles, speaking in them of these things. Paul talked about the coming of the Lord. Paul talked about false prophets. Paul talked about living a godly, holy, righteous life. He talked about all these things in which are some things hard to be understood. Peter's not taking a slap at Paul, but he's just saying something that everybody knew was true. It would be like me talking about our general superintendent, David Bernard, who trained as a lawyer and has 75 degrees after his name. He's just smart, okay? He's smart. Well, Peter just said, you know this, Paul? He's smart. And the way Paul writes it is eloquent, and he's, he's brilliant, and he writes this beautiful, flowing, flowery theology, and it's so profound, and he said, because he's smart, there are some things in his letters that are hard to understand. <laughs> Which they that are unlearned and unstable, they rest them, wrestle, they twist them. As they do also the other scriptures, but they do it unto their own destruction. Again, Peter stresses that if Jesus has delayed his coming, if, it is only because he wants sinners to find salvation. And since... Peter has just told us to live godly, holy, peaceful, spotless, blameless lives. He now refers to Paul, who has written the very same things in his epistles. But the false teachers, this is important, the false teachers have twisted Paul's teaching because Paul was known just about above everything else for teaching that we are saved by grace. And the false teachers have twisted his teaching that we are saved by grace and said, well, since we're saved by grace, it makes no difference how we live. Now, Paul would have said, God forbid, which he said 10 times alone in the book of Romans. And Peter said this, because these false teachers are unlearned, they don't know the scripture, and they're unstable, their lives are chaos, they rest. They, the, the, the Greek word is streblu. It means to torture or distort or pervert Paul's words. And they do it to their own destruction. Be careful of people that are always telling you, you don't have to when the word of God says you should. Be careful of people that disregard and discount and disrespect the teaching of good godly elders that you know they knew Jesus and you know they had the touch of God on their life and some kid comes along and says, well, they didn't know anything. Let me tell you. It's like, go sit down. Verse 17. Ye therefore, beloved, seeing ye know these things before, you already know this stuff. Beware, beware. Beware, CCC, beware. 
lest ye also, that they could get in your ear, they could get in your face, they could get in your spirit. Beware lest ye also being led away with the error of the wicked, that you, you might fall from your own steadfastness. But here's what you got to do. You got to keep adding to your faith. Don't be stagnant. Don't just sit there. Live for God with all your heart and your mind and your soul and your strength. Grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be glory both now and forever. Amen. Peter wrote this letter to warn us against breaking down the walls of separation that must stand between true believers and false teachers. He says there can be no fellowship between truth and error. He cautions us, don't be led away with the error of the wicked. Now you think the word wicked means a terribly bad person. It doesn't. The word means lawless. A wicked person in God's sight is somebody who disregards his commandments or throws them away. They live outside of what God has commanded them to do. And God says they're wicked. You wouldn't say they're wicked. You'd say they're a nice neighbor. They're a church member. They're, they're, they're really polite. But God says, no, they're wicked because they're outside of my commandments. They're lawless. And here's how you can tell most of the time. They speak evil of those who preach and teach God's law. And they despise spiritual authority. Peter has already told us in this book. Those false teachers promise they're new converts. You're going to have a new freedom. But it turns out to be the same old bondage. And they prey on young, weak believers who have only recently escaped the pollutions of the world. And ultimately, they abort their life with God and they lead them right back into sin and darkness. Now, Peter loved these believers he's writing to. And I love all of you. Four times in chapter 3, he used a term of endearment to get his point across. Beloved, please be mindful. Beloved, please don't be ignorant. Beloved, please be diligent. Beloved, please beware. The false teachers in Peter's day, we're leading many people away from apostolic doctrine and apostolic lifestyle. And that's why he implores, don't let it be you. It may be them, and we'll be sad to see them go. And we'll grieve over them walking away. And we'll cry tears and pray that God brings them back. And that's a tragedy. But don't let it be you. Because you can't pray to get them back if you go. Don't let it be you. And since false teachers in our day are doing the very same thing, I plead with you like Peter pled with them. Don't let it be you. Guard your little family. Guard your marriage and your kids and your grandkids. Guard each other. Don't be led astray. Don't fall. Not this close to the coming of the Lord. Don't fall. Continue to grow in grace.
and grow in knowledge. Make sure you're anchored to the Word of God. And I would end with one more term, term of endearment. And I would say, beloved, please stay stirred in your spirit. It's so easy to get complacent and lazy. It is so easy to just kind of doze off spiritually. It is so easy to just come to church and not let church kind of get inside of you until it almost irks your flesh. And, and you just think, I've either got to just kind of lay back and, and let my flesh take control, or I've just got to put the flesh down and I've got to give vent to the Spirit. You need that kind of church. You need that kind of prayer. You need that kind of preaching. You need that kind of living because you got to stay stirred up because Jesus isn't coming back for people that are sound asleep spiritually. The parable of the foolish virgins tells us that. And so we finish our little study, our little tour of the book of 2 Peter. But I hope something in this series nags at you until it just about irritates you to death. Because Jesus is coming. I join the host of the elders who said to my parents and those that preceded them in faith, Jesus is coming. Yeah, those preachers are dead and gone and buried. I saw them put them in the ground. All you saw was a herald of the gospel message go into the ground. The gospel didn't go into the ground. The gospel came out of the ground on Easter Sunday morning. The gospel is still living and active and powerful. And so is the word that says, in an hour that you think not, son of man, coming. And it's all over. Isn't that scary, Pastor? Oh, no, that's not scary. That's absolutely thrilling. No more junk and trash and garbage and sin and perversion and brokenness and addiction and bondage. No more broken homes and broken minds and broken people and broken hearts. Jesus is coming. We're not only expecting it, we're excited about it. <laughs> There is just something about that far under the surface of this service that would love to break out before we go home. And so I'm just going to give you permission to just let it out. Let it out through your hands lifted. Let it out through your words raised. Let it out through your voice shouted. Let it out through your tears flowing. Let it out through your vocabulary. Let it out through your response. But there's something in this room that would just like to break out and flow like a river because if we could ever take this home, if we could ever live this every day, if we could ever take this to work, if we could ever take this to our neighborhood, Jesus is coming We'd live different. We'd talk different. We'd act different. Jesus is coming. I'm not talking about a slumber party here in prayer. I'm talking about some fervent, apostolic, Holy Ghost, lifted up, intercessory prayer. I'm talking about a prayer warrior that you've already been feeling this in your spirit. Coronavirus didn't scare you. Coronavirus motivated you. If it's this bad around the world, Jesus must be coming. If this many people have died, Jesus must be coming. If the governments are confused and fearful, Jesus must 
must be coming. If nobody knows what the answer is, Jesus must be coming. 